Welcome back to Red Star Over Asia. We cover Asian politics from a socialist perspective. Previously, we spoke with Owen Miller about the origins of the Korean Communist Movement, but this episode, we hope to connect the Communist Movement across time, wars, and governments. To help us connect all these dots, we have with us a very special guest who may possess the longest CV we've had on this show. Born and raised in the Soviet Union, he is currently professor at the University of Oslo. He is a public intellectual in South Korea with a popular column in the progressive new Korean newspaper Hangyore. He's also one of the foremost scholars on the early Korean communist movement. Our guest today is Pak Noja, also known as Vladimir Tikhanov. Welcome, this is Red Star Over Asia. Today we have a very special guest we have here with us, Doja Park, a current professor at Oslo University, Oslo University, uh, teaching Korean studies, is that correct? And I, am, I will be the host today, uh, Bori, alongside Mike. Hello, how's it going from Busan? And Jay. Hello. All right, so Doja, could you give us a brief introduction? Like, how would you introduce yourselves to our audience of uh, East Asian leftists, assumably? Well, I would say that I'm an education and research worker. I'm currently based in Norway, and I used to have been based there for the last 22 years, unbelievably. <laughs> so I was born in what used to be at its better time was used to be Leningrad, and now it's called St. Petersburg. So, and I lived in Russia until 1997, at which point I had my degree. So I went to South Korea to work. I worked here in South Korea for three years. And then I went to live and work in Norway. And I have been doing Korea and East Asia in general. And in the last around six, seven years, I've been concentrating very much on Korean socialist communist movements history. So now I have prepared a book on the subject and if everything goes well, it should appear at Hawaii University Press, hopefully next year. Using one good thing we have in South Korea, we have still some degree of freedom of speech. So using that, <laughs> I have been delivering lectures on Korean socialist history to sympathetic public uh, during <laughs> the last four years and then the transcripts had been deciphered and put into the book format. So that's what it is. And separately from that, I've been proceeding with academic work on Korean socialist history in English and compiled a book manuscript based mostly on my pre-published articles. And oh, so it's a, this is a completely different set of pieces. Yes. Oh, okay. It, it, it has to be very academic because you see, last time academia was interested in Korean socialism was in the 60s and 70s during the oh, Cold yeah. War, Ooh. for obvious reasons. <laughs> so, and at that time, you had the lone gentleman, people like uh, Lee John Sik and Scalapino, who put together a monumental volume Korean socialist movement history. By the way, they were really assiduous scholars and gathered lots of important materials, but they didn't have access to Moscow archives at that point. 
they mostly based themselves on Japanese police archives. Mm -hmm. And it's extremely important material, but it's not all. Now we have much more materials. So now I feel that I can add something to Scalapino and Lee's work. And I also have a very different perspective. So that was- Oh yeah, so I, 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 I guess we could, I guess we'll try and get you on next time after the book launches and discuss more deeply regarding uh, that. That would be absolutely great, absolutely great, because I think Korean socialism or communism is one story which deserves to be much better known than it is now. Absolutely. Now Let's... Yeah. Oh, sorry. Oh, yeah, please, please. Oh, yeah, so that's exactly the topic we'll be covering with you today, Doja. So uh, I'll start with a very basic, almost banal question about uh, you writing about tying the modern South Korean left to the diverse array of communist organizations and individuals during uh, the era which Korea was under Japanese colonial rule, which the legacy has been, we've talked about this with Owen, erased in public memory, both in the South and North of Korea. So why is it so important for leftists today, uh, whether that be Korean or otherwise, to rediscover this forgotten era? Well, you see, the thing is that we can think about ourselves as incredibly modern, but we still live more or less in the same capitalist world. A world system, a capitalist world system, the one which we have, which started to form around 17th century, which took its classical shape in early 19th century, a world capitalist system more or less works in accordance to the same principles then and now would change it, of course, aside from enormous technical progress. We have also the changes in the territorial dynamics of world capitalist system. For example, place of South Korea now inside this system is very different from what used to be the place of Korea in 20s or 30s. In 20s or 30s, Korea was supplying mostly rice. It was very typical periphery. It started to be more like semi-industrialized, semi-periphery by the end of colonial period. Today, however, South Korea, as you certainly might have heard, had been officially acknowledged as advanced country, <laughs> which in more sort of uh, political sort of uh, political science language means that it is part of the capitalist core. It is a producer of high value added, high technological goods, and it's increasingly a major global investor. So Korea's old position inside the world system has been taken now by countries in say South Asia, Southeast Asia. But still all the issues with which Korean communists had been struggling in 20s and 30s are still here inside the capitalist world system, either on the Korean peninsula or elsewhere. And that's why I think that all those lessons from 20s and 30s are still valuable and not necessarily only to Koreans. They are generally universally available. That is a wonderful uh, uh, answer. And I think we briefly touched upon that issue of Korea's place within the world capitalist system in our previous episodes uh, as well. So let's let's see where, where this discussion today leads us. Yeah. I think Jay, this you is, want to? Yeah. yeah. I think this is a great segue into our second question. So in one of your articles, you talk about 
the socialist movement as this um, creating a counter hegemonic force in South Korea. Do you think you can elaborate what you mean by that? So why is you know socialism, whether it's in the mold of the common turn or parliamentary social democratic parties, continues to endure? Uh, well, it has something to do with the immanent, the dynamics immanent to the world uh, capitalist system. Uh, capitalism is based on private, well, it's basically accumulation as such, capital accumulation as such is a public process. However, under the general rule of capitalism is that the subject of accumulation is supposed to be private individuals and mostly belong to the established, uh, who mostly belong to the established elites. So very naturally for the people who are structurally disadvantaged by this process, the other pole that is the way to get out of the structural inequities of the structural injustice of private accumulation is to construct a system under which private ownership of the means of production would no longer be possible, so to say. To those people who are disadvantaged, who are put into underdog position by this system, it always, it looks always like that, that if the huge conglomerates would be socialized, if they would be publicly owned, if the system will be socialized, then their lives would take a turn to the bad. And that's what is called socialism. That was essentially the program of socialists from the very beginning. And the same sort of issue we still have now, we have a country where wealth, South Korea, is extremely monopolized. The richest people taking enormous share of the wealth. You have the richest property or owners, 5% of the richest property owners owning more than 80% of property, which also means that lots of people, especially on the very low, on the lowest ranks of the system, end up owning nothing. In South Korea, it's a country where real estate ownership is a question of life and death. <laughs> As you certainly know, given especially the rent levels in the city where we are now in Seoul, uh, you're from, you're in Pusan, sorry. <laughs> so, but in, in Pusan, a little bit it's better here. But yeah. the thing is that 40% of South Koreans don't own their houses, so they are essentially tenants. So they are completely dependent on the private rental market because the public rental market is so underdeveloped in this country. And this market is terrible, it's really predatory. So people obviously perceive socialism as a system under which things would be public and they no longer will be exposed to the predatory workings of the system, that's it. Oh, so a brief interjection would be one thing that Kore modern Koreans could learn from the early 20th century communist movement would be its tenants movements. So currently in South Korea, it doesn't have a tenants movement. Uh, the right to housing is not really articulated as a universal demand. It's usually uh, delegated for the homeless, for the house poor, et cetera, et cetera. It's not, it's not really recognized as a social right. But even under Japanese colonial rule, communists had organized tenants to not pay their uh, 
to pay their, pay their rent and organize rent strikes. And that's definitely uh, a proud tradition that we should revive. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And you see the patterns are so clear here. I, I'm now stay, staying in a poor area of Seoul, Gumchon Ward. And people here tell me that many buildings in the area are owned by the outsiders from Gangnam Ward from the richest area of Seoul. So obviously you have the patterns in which the poor areas are being used as cash cows by the upper middle class and upper class people from the richer areas, which of course adds to the sense of injustice and makes people to think about a system where affordable space, affordable housing space, Oh, yeah. All right. Well, that was an interesting uh, response. So continuing on the talking about what we can learn from the 20th century experience with Korean socialist movements and communist movements. Uh, throughout the 20th century, there were various uh, iterations and adoptions of several uh, political platforms, um, which you've shown as playing an important role in the post-colonial era, specifically. Uh, the demands in these programs changed a lot between the different iterations. Can you give us a brief rundown of how the different programs reflected changing thought within the communist movement? Uh, well, you see the beginnings, if you look at the changing programs of Korean communists, the beginnings were ultra radical. It's always very much depends on where the political situation stands. And in say 1990, 1920, 1921, and Russia's civil war was still ongoing. And we should remember one thing, the Bolsheviks didn't want to rule Russia. They wanted to liberate the world. And among the Koreans who were with Bolsheviks, there was a very strong expectation that they would liberate Korea. And then, uh, Russian revolution would translate into a sort of world historical upheaval. So if you look at the first programs from say 1921 from Irkutsk Communist Party, they definitely say they want Soviet Korea. So, but again, you should understand at that point, Soviet didn't necessarily mean part of the Moscow-centered Soviet state. There was a hope that the whole world will become a chain of Soviet republics. So it was a hope for world revolution. And then civil war ended, a revolution was contained inside mostly the borders of old Tsarist empire. World revolution didn't get any further and soon Soviet system started to get its conservative turn. So uh, 1920s was the time of general stabilization of capitalism until it exploded in 1929. So until that, it looked as if the system came to its normal way of functioning. You remember this expression, roaring 20s. It's a bit like roaring 90s. So. Stock market was great <laughs> until it crashed. So, and under such circumstances, Korean communists had, of course, also to moderate their program. Now, famous or unfamous, Comintern's two-stage theory came into work. Of course, Comintern didn't invent it. It's a social democratic theory. Originally, the idea that first, Korea needs a democratic and anti-colonial revolution. And there should be some degree of united front with even non-communist or non-proletarian elements in the process. And after that, in a democratic Korean Republic, Koreans would be able to proceed further. 
to socialist stage. So in the 20s, that was more or less a commonsensical program. Things, however, changed uh, in the end of the 1920s as Comintern radicalized, even prior to the crash on the Wall Street in the 1929. Comintern started to radicalize from approximately 1927-28 under the weight of complicated circumstances. It had something to do with the destruction of the United Front in China, where Chiang Kai-shek's nationalists started massacring communists, obviously, which obviously led to the question to which degree two-stage theory is still useful if the first stage ends with communists, allies killing communists off. So, Comintern started to radicalize, and Korean communists were radicalizing as well. So now it was more about a revolution from below and more about a proletariat becoming a hegemonic, the hegemonic force, even during the democratic or anti-colonial stage of the revolution. Actually, proletariat was also growing very quickly in Korea. It was pretty militant. Uh, there was around 100,000 factory workers and transport workers in Korea by the end of the 1920s. And funny, funny thing, a unionization rate was approximately two times as high as today. <laughs> so, today unionization rate in South Korea would be around 11%. So it's growing by the way. Uh, then it was above 20%. So obviously Korean workers were, it was still a very young class and very militant class. So Korean communists could rationally hope that those workers would become the hegemonic force in the transition. And then came the world depression a world crisis, which in a way, from a Korean communist viewpoint, it just reconfirmed that Comintern's assessment was right. The capitalist system is going to crumble and the communists have to become more radical. So a programs from the 1930s envision even the democratic stage of revolution being led by revolutionary proletariat. And the position vis-a-vis non-communist nationalists is getting more, in, in a way, communists were getting a bit more picky and choosy about their lies. They started demanding that if non-communists or say nationalist forces want to ally themselves with communists and they have to conform to certain basic demands, they have to be anti-colonial enough, they have to be revolutionary enough and so on. And it all continued this way until 1935, 1936, when Stalin was too alarmed with the power takeover in Germany. A Comintern switched to the United Front strategy and tactic. And then Korean communists decided that they would accept even pretty moderate nationalists into coalition with them. But all the time, if you look throughout the programs, you have there also democratic demands. You have the demands for a democratic republic with all basic freedoms. And very importantly, you have the demands for a welfare state. Even on the democratic stage, Korean communists wanted 
workers to get eight hour working day, to get vacations for at least two weeks, two weeks a year. They wanted maternity leave for at least uh, six weeks before six, uh, six weeks after the child birth and so on and so on and specific. There were lots of specific demands about child labor, women labor and so on. So uh, it was, their programs were very strong, infused this very strong idea of general democratization of society. And of course, their models were the pioneering welfare experiments in Europe, Soviet experiment, of course, but also welfare developments in Weimar Germany and in Austria prior to the fascist takeover with public housing being constructed and so on. So it's obviously it was- okay. I find the- uh... I was just going to say that was a very thorough like run through of a, a long uh, <laughs> uh, track of history, but yeah, very succinct. Thank you for that. Yeah, I was uh, just going to say, just sounded very interesting where you talked about how the demands for a democratic republic were constant, you know, because um, you know, like much across the world, the demand was rarely realized in many national liberation movements and. I, you, I guess you can argue that would include the communist part of, I guess what people would call the communist part of Korea, North Korea. And I was quite curious your, your thoughts on, on why that happened. Uh, if uh, I, I couldn't understand, the, the people would not include the communists into the demand for democratic republic. You, do you mean that? No, no, I mean, um, I'm, I'm just quite curious why <laughs> in so many national liberation movements, including Korea, like the demands for democratic republic after um, um, independence seem to not be realized. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a very complicated issue. <laughs> the thing is that democracy doesn't come on itself. It doesn't come because you simply wanted it. Democracy, I would say, from political science point of view, is a condition of certain balance between different political forces, which the balance which precludes the power holders from grabbing the power in its entirety. And let's not to be naive. If the power holders only have an opportunity to grab power as a whole, they of course will do it. The question is, who can resist them? In case of South Korea, let's take our example. You remember when Park Geun-hye, when there were huge demonstrations against Park Geun-hye four years, uh, five years ago. As we know now, Park Geun-hye was seriously contemplating a military coup d'etat. So military was making plans, but at some stage they decided not to press it. Why? Because they knew that there are going to be extremely harsh resistance. So they gave up. So democracy in South Korea exists because there are people interested in continuing this. Uh, you have a combination of forces which precludes any would-be authoritarian from grabbing power in its entirety. And I guess all of you are from US, right? So you have seen what Trump attempted to do. And in the, in the end, he was stopped again because American system is pretty decentralized. And you have other power constellations which prevented him from taking it all and making a country into fascist dictatorship. Now, the thing is that in the newly liberated countries, there were usually no alternative power centers, no counter power in a way which could somehow 
check and balance the new power holders. So that's how, for example, Stalin and Stalinists could proceed with making a mockery out of socialism in Soviet Russia from the late 1920s. There was nobody there to check party's power. Unions were already under the party. Soviets were formally in charge. In reality, they were mostly excluded from politics. So party power buttressed by secret police was just almost complete. It could establish itself above the society. But that was the case in many newly liberated countries where the former liberation struggle leaders or the forces who, uh, who fought for the liberation were able to build up a power monopoly and establish itself as a force above the civil society. And of course, Korea was not the only case. You can look many North Korea's friends elsewhere. For example, Kim Il one of Kim Il-sung's best international friends was the, I think he already passed away, late Robert Mugabe, uh, who used to be a distinguished uh, guerrilla leader fighting against racists in Rhodesia. But after Zimbabwe became a country of its own, in the end, Mugabe state quickly established power monopoly, uh, putting itself above the society. A typical case, actually. So it's not only North Korea. I would say it's a very typical development, unfortunately, very unfortunately. Democracy presupposes certain degree of pluralization of power and certain degree of popular power from below. You must have, for example, strong unions to preserve democracy. But again, you, you understand it doesn't happen on itself. Yeah, so despite the various different iterations of the communists uh, declaring various political programs, there might have been a common core, uh, common to all of them. What I guess that would tell us about what the communist political vision were uh, th uh, throughout its years. Could you, could you explain what that was, if it did exist? Uh, well, basically, they wanted a sort of alternative modernity in which industrialization, of which they were serious proponents of, would benefit everybody instead of benefiting the minority in power, the minority who owns the means of production. So democratic demands would include the general democratization, all the basic freedoms, but it was always also about free popular education, free education for everybody, something we, that we still don't have in South Korea. It included always free medicine, democratization of medical achievements. So it was democratization, not only in political, but also in social means meaning of the word. And it would always include the defense of labor, defense of labor's demands when it comes to labor conditions. For example, very essential thing was eight hour working day. And well, as you know, in South Korea, even now, even with South Korea being part of the capitalist core inside the world system, many of those things were never achieved. We don't have fully free medicine. We don't have free education. 
and with eight hour working day, it still, as you see, it doesn't work. I yeah, we have a, <clears throat> sorry, can I go ahead? Yeah. yeah, we have a presidential election that is advocating for 120 hour work. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes, but uh, the thing is, and and he's popular, and he is now number one candidate. <laughs> so we, we do have a problem here. So and another thing is that if you would try to check how many hours people really work, we have the mandated fifty-two hours gap cap on working on working hours per week. In reality, however, in manufacturing, it would be closer to 56 hours. So in reality, people work more than the legal cap, which means that laws are not getting implemented here. And that's terrible. Mm. I had a quick question about how, uh, you know, we've covered like the, the first chunk of the 20th century, but I had a question about the 80s democracy movement or the democracy movement generally, but particularly uh, the period in the 80s as it gets radicalized after the Guangzhou uprising, etc. Yeah. So, you know, at the 80s at this time, neoliberalism is kicking into high gear. A lot of social movements around the world, including unions and student movements that had been robust in the 60s and 70s are in retreat. But the opposite seems to be occurring in a lot of ways in Korea during this time, South Korea. Um, so, and then also ideologically, the South Korean student movement seems to be bucking the trends and becomes very influenced by a more kind of classical Marxism in terms of like what they're reading um, and how they're thinking about politics. Uh, whereas in a lot of other places, people are kind of jettisoning, uh, you know, what would be considered, you know, Marxism, Leninism or classical versions of Marxism. So why do you think the student movement at that time was, uh, making these advances when in so many other places it was retreating and why do you think they were attracted to that particular those particular ideologies during this time well i think that being marxist i would look at the basis and then we'll try to understand what happens with the superstructure <laughs> so if you look at the basis in in the case of korea in the 1980s that was a classical capitalist state of the sort that existed in europe before before capitalism changed after the war. So it was capitalism without redistribution. Uh, the first law on minimal wage, for example, only was introduced to South Korea in 1986. Before that, there was no lower limit on how much you can underpay your workers. So the, and workers uh, stopped to go hungry. I mean, the wages came catched up with the minimal survival level only in the end of the 1960s, and they remained very, very low. If you look at the manufacturing wage in South Korea in early 1980s, if you apply the contemporary exchange rate, Korean manufacturing worker, productive as he, and, and as he was, and working around 3,000 hours per year. Koreans were the longest working people in the world at that time. Korean worker would get home per month something around $120 in following the contemporary exchange rate. So obviously it was a classical no welfare capitalism with workers being grossly underpaid, forced to work inhuman number of hours and getting 
no political rights. Basically, democracy was a sham and no social rights. So it was a typical example of classical non-welfare authoritarian capitalism. And it looked very much like a capitalist, uh, capitalist system in say, certain more authoritarian parts of say late 19th century, early 20th century Europe. So it's very obvious then the response from below was in the same way. The workers who didn't have social rights first and foremost wanted at least political rights because political rights would enable them to form free unions and to beg in for their wages. And it would make them at least less poor than they were. Not rich, of course, but at least less poor. And ideally, they wanted more redistribution. And more redistribution, as I have already explained, means more public redistribution of wealth, which is exactly socialism. So, so it's nothing strange. It had something to do with how South Korean economy and society looked like in the 1980s. And we should also remember that at that point, South Koreans themselves consider their country a part of the third world, exploited, oppressed third world. So today we have a very different capitalism in South Korea. We have at least some rudimentary redistribution system we have extremely fragmented working class. And in some sectors of economy, we have some of the highest wages in Asia. In other sectors, it depends on your form of employment, you get grossly underpaid. But generally, working class is very fragmented. And South Korea now is a core state. It's now considered part of the Euro-American Japanese core of global capitalism. So under such constellation, you have also very different ideology and very different movement. So I, I, I think it's pretty obvious. Hmm. All right, good answer. All right, I think uh, Bori, you had a, a question after this. Oh, so in, in the, in, I forgot which, which, article it was, I think it was maybe uh, Worldwide Red Age, the, the, right. the article you wrote in 2020. Uh, right. And there's the, the headings of the section were uh, national liberation versus people's democracy. Oh, and yes. this is also the divide that happened after in, in the 80s uh, regarding what the, uh, what the character of Korean society was, what stage of development was it, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, could do you know? Could you explain uh, briefly how previous iterations uh, of the debates between communists played out again in the eighties to early nineties? Or uh, well, uh, for communists in nineteen twenties, the most important question, uh, bone of contention, was who were their allies? Where <laughs> to which degree they could ally with non-communists? And here the answer depended on your view of situation and its priorities. If you consider colonialism the most important issue, then you obviously can ally with militant anti-colonialists, even if they are nationalists rather than socialists. So if the issue is colonial, if the issue is capitalism, 
they you should not align with capitalists, even if they're Korean, <laughs> even if they theoretically want free Korea. So, and in the 1920s, there were lots of communist groups uh, outside and inside Korea, and the groups which were closer to Bolshevik orthodoxy, like Irkutsk Communist Party, they were extremely careful about any talks about any alliances with non-communists. Then there were Shanghai Communist Party, the people who were originally nationalist exiles and then in a way reinvented themselves as communists and they wanted actually wider alliance because they thought it's colonialism that is the first problem. Inside Korea, there was more Orthodox Tuesday society Tuesday, they, they thought that Karl Marx was born on Tuesday. So that's why, that's why they got the name so, <laughs> to celebrate the birthday of our leader. So Tuesday society was a domestic extension of Irkutsk Communist Party. They were more orthodox and they, want, they thought that communists should just lead the workers and poorer. Peasants that would be more than enough and Korean bourgeoisie is hopeless anyway. So, but then there was another so-called soul group, which was originally founded by a very interesting person, Kim Saguk, who originally was in fact an aristocrat with good Confucian education, who somehow refashioned himself as a communist. There was such a type among Korea's early communists, a former Confucian aristocrat. <laughs> somehow ended up accepting Marxism as a new truth instead of Jusianism. So this group had stronger roots in non-communist educated society. And they thought that first and foremost, even if in, in alliance with nationalists, communists should fight for Korean state to be reestablished. So, and obviously the same thing replayed in the 1980s where you have the people called Popular Democracy Faction, PD, who thought that Korea is first and foremost as a developing capitalist society. And the main struggle is class struggle. At the same time, you had the so-called NL, National Liberation Faction, the people who thought that the defining feature of South Korean life is its neo-colonial relationship vis-a-vis -vis the United States. So, and NL people were mostly more in favor of blocking with uh, uh, opposition, with opposition movement, uh, with people like Kim Dae-jung, for example. So since they hoped that more pro-democracy oppositional candidate, once he won, would be more uh, would be more likely to pursue more independent policy vis-a-vis -vis the US and more pro-unification policy vis-a-vis -vis North Korea. In some way, it wasn't completely wrong when Kim Dae-jun was elected. He indeed tried a reconciliation policy with North Korea with mixed, mixed results. But now, even if a, say, moderate liberal candidate like Moon Jae-in takes power, <laughs> nothing happens. The relationship with US now is perhaps more dependent than before. And the policy vis-a-vis -vis North Korea is decided now in Washington, not in Seoul. So whoever wins basically, of course, if ultra-conservative candidate wins, you will have lots of stupidity 
taking place, but bearing that, essential decisions are no longer made in Seoul. So obviously at this point, NL theory no longer holds water. You can make an alliance with this progressive liberal candidate. It would not bring us any closer to the unification of the future. So I guess if we continue on that line of inquiry, uh, how, how, how do you think that divide plays out today in South Korea? Like, if, if we ask Noja, who are your allies? How would you conceptualize South Korea? Uh, really? <laughs> well, you see, now we live in a different historical epoch. 80s now is very much a past for everybody, but it's a past which defines the present. So many of the NL leaders of the 80s and 90s are now part of Moon Jae-in's government. So obviously they evolved into basically liberals and became by the way much, much more pro-US in the process. But the thing is that as Korea was becoming a richer core state, things changed generally. Some of the workers became richer than many other workers. For example, if you are permanently employed car maker, or for example, permanently employed bank employee in South Korea, you would get purchasing power perhaps higher than your German or French counterpart. If you think about the price different differentials. So, so obviously South Korea, at least for some sector of working class became a rich society. So obviously parts of the PD movement as a, some workers became richer than many other workers, parts of the workers movement also became more moderate, which, which I think is only, only very understandable. So you have more moderate PD People like Sim San Jun, the head of the Justice Party, who just told us that she's now not going to fight for president any longer. <laughs> so obviously, obviously presenting her vote to the liberals. So, well, Sim San Jun, when I look at her going to the military units, donning the uniform <laughs> and telling about the importance of national defense uh, for, for progressive movement. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I'm trying to conf conflate it with the image of Sin San Jun as the labor leader who had uh, been wanted by police in the mid and uh, late 1980s. And I sometimes I get a feeling at two different people. <laughs> <laughs> Sim San John, who was a Marxist Leninist and who was wanted by police in the late 1980s, and Sim San John in military uniform today. Sometimes I get the feeling we are dealing with two different people. So some and parts of NL movement basically joined the liberals in richer, more core South Korea. Some parts of PD movement didn't formally join the liberals, but moved very much to the right. I'm staying with the people who didn't move right, uh, the Workers' Party, Labour Party, No Dong Dan. So we have nothing to do with North Korean Labour Party. <laughs> we, think, we think that they misuse our label, but anyway, so, so completely independent from, from them. And we are more or less on classical socialist position. We want 
public ownership of large-scale production facilities. We want public control of the banks, socialized economy based on redistribution of wealth. So to say, but I think majority of South Koreans don't know them exist, unfortunately. <laughs> so obviously, obviously in South Korea, we have a monopolized economy and very much monopolized politics, both in economy and in politics. It's not a very good place for startups. You can, it's hard to start, <laughs> start the things from the scratch. You don't get very far, but well, we are struggling. It's still important because it's important to have the party like that because you have worker struggles. Some of them desperate and very isolated and the party has resources to help them. So it's, it's important because it can be where the workers are struggling. But otherwise I think if we are to become more mainstream, it may take long, long years, very long years. So uh, when we're on the topic of contemporary Korean society and uh, you've repeatedly pointed out that South Korea is part of the capitalist core, uh, I, I'm, I'm thinking about what kind of ramifications that has uh, on the international level, like South Korea offshoring its factories into Vietnam, China, India. Uh, and one of the core insights of the core semi-periphery periphery is the relationship between nation states and how the system of imperialism uh, underdevelops countries in, in the periphery. Like how how do you how should I don't see a lot of discussions about South Korea's role in the perpetuation of that, and if there has been a change in its position in the world capitalist system, I guess we need to start those discussions much more urgently. Uh, would you have any thoughts that we could use as a starting starting point? Oh uh, well, we have a very interesting situation with South Korea because it has a sort of dual position. I think it, it, it was already like that in the 1930s. Anyway. In the 1930s, Japanese Zaibatsus were investing in their Korean colony, building some of the most advanced factories in Korea, like uh, Noguchi's uh, fertilizer factory in Hamhun. It was ammonia, uh, it, it was a fertilizer factory, it was the biggest fertilizer plant in Asia. At that, at that point. So Japanese uh, Zaibatsus were using Korea as a prime space for investment because it had cheap electricity and cheap workers. So at, at the same time, Korean businessmen started to invest in Japan occupied China. So for example, if you look at uh, Kim Nyon-su, a, a brother of Kim Son-su who owned Tongai Ilbo and Kyon uh, Son Panjik textile factory. Kim Yong-soo in the 1930s was doing business in Japanese-occupied Manjure in puppet state of Manjougo. Korean capital established their number of factories where again, Chinese workers could be exploited for even lower price than Koreans. So Korea in a way already at that point was somewhere in between, in between Japan occupied China and metropolis of Japan. So today, we have the same thing, but Korea's status, of course, is much higher <laughs> compared to the 1930s. Uh, much of Korea's banking sector is controlled by foreign capital. You have a big players there. So, but if you go to South Asia, Southeast Asia, you find out that Korea is much bigger than you could have seen. In Vietnam, 
for very large time, Samsung was the number one investor. So in Bangladesh, South Korea, in textile sector, South Korea used to be number one investor for a pretty long time. In Cambodia, when workers are striking on South Korean invested enterprises, the government sends its crack troops to kill them and put the order back. So Hun Sen used to employ Lee Myung Bak as his economic advisor, even when Lee Myung Bak was a president, which is an interesting, <laughs> so sort of very interesting way of doing a by job and do a moonlighting. <laughs> so never seen a president moonlighting as advice. <laughs> That's a place anyway. So anyway, it's a very interesting connection between Hun Sen and South Korean establishment, but it obviously helps South Korean conglomerates to use Cambodian workers uh, for their purposes. So South Korea is a receptor for investments from the capitalist core in the most profitable sectors like banking. And at the same time, it's a big time exploit of Asian labor, not only Asian actually, because obviously South Korean invested plants, you find them in many places, including by the way, the United States, at least some impoverished areas of the United States, Mexico, and of course, Central America. And it started pretty early. You already had Korean invested textile factories in Guatemala and Honduras in the 1980s. It started pretty, pretty early. And now I think, for example, in textiles, much of production had been all out shipped abroad from South Korea. Same goes, by the way, for the mobiles. Mea culpa, I'm using Samsung mobile. <laughs> I think around 85 to 90% of them are produced outside of Korea, so I'm sure. This one had been produced in Vietnam, China, India, anyways. Okay, um, well, we already touched on a lot of these things. Um, I'm going to actually ask this question, this question, that's originally um, Mike's question, but I think it's kind of a question I'm very interested in, is that um, South Korea's is a um, proud tradition of social movements, which we like to date back to the March 1st movement, you know, and so I found it very interesting to learn that unlike a lot of communist parties at the time in the early 20th century, Korean communists in the, at least the peninsula, didn't have a strong armed wing, even with all their oppression, most of the fighting was done by the partisans in China. And, you know, so they were, they were much closer to the civil society. And it was, I was, I was very curious why that would be. Oh, well, the thing is that it has something to do with Korea's natural circumstances. It's not Vietnam, unfortunately. Unfortunately, <laughs> they don't have jungles here. It's uh, extremely hard to build here a uh, walking, really, in a way, well-to-do guerrilla movements. North Koreans tried to do that. In the 1968, dispatching their commanders to organize guerrilla movement in Kanwondo, it never worked well, you know. Yeah. So there were important guerrilla movements in places like Chiri San. It took several years to annihilate them, but they were all annihilated in the end. Again, Chiri San is no Vietnamese jungle. So it has something to do with the fact that naturally this part of peninsula is not a very good place for guerrilla movements. And Japan was a modernizing colonizer. And one of the first things it did, it established a very tight system of territorial control. 
uh, Japanese established police stations in every sub-county, every Mion. And each police station had, we didn't have internet at that point, it was telephone. <laughs> so that, any, anyway, it had the means of communication which Korean population didn't have. Then Korean population was disarmed. Richer people could have hunting guns. That's, that was all. Korean population was thoroughly disarmed. Japanese had two divisions stationed in colonial, uh, colonial Korea, and they had one of the tightest police systems in the contemporary world. Two or three times more policemen per 1,000 people compared with places like Britain or France. So uh, Korea was saturated with police forces in a way, very much like South Korean 70s and 80s, <laughs> in fact. So the conditions were such that it looked much more promising, unlike, for example, China or Vietnam, to build the movement as urban proletarian movement with leadership mostly being intellectuals, many of them marginal intellectuals, the people from impoverished families who somewhere managed to get education, learn Japanese, read the needed books, they became the leaders of the movement. Typical example would be people like Lee Jae-yu from a marginal area of Northeastern Korea, However, he went to school. He was from a poor family of a local clerk, but he went to school. He went to Nihon University in Tokyo, radicalized. Uh, he was able to produce theoretical and practical pieces. He was able to read and write in Japanese, and that's how he accessed the Marxist canon. So people like him, marginal intelligentsia, they became leaders. Well, um, I don't want to take up too much of your time since we're already going a little off schedule. I think this will be a very good way to conclude. I was, um, uh, uh, Bori, do you have any concluding remarks? Uh, uh, so I had one final question. Uh, when reading your book, uh, uh, the book of your lectures on Korean communists, uh, it's, it deals a lot with what the communist militants actually wrote and their intellectual uh, capacities. I think this is an interest, this really stood out for me because most other uh, articles that I've come across usually deal with their activities, ideas, and yes. mostly of their like lives that have kind of like a, at times uh, coming close to like uh, heroic struggles, tales. Yes. Uh, so, so, so I was curious if you could uh, talk a bit about uh, the intellectual debates or the, the the writings they had and how they could speak to, uh, I guess, the world today. Why, why? Yeah. So briefly touch upon that book, if you could. Oh uh, well, how how they speak uh, to the world today? Uh, when it comes to their writings, there is an important distinction to be made. And that is between the 20s and the 30s. The 20s were the time of, in a way, initial propagation, initial, in a, in a way, proselytizing. So uh, in the 20s, may articles are mostly either they explain to the reader the basics of Marxist theory, 
Many of them are adapted translations from Japanese, actually. So they all they deal with tactics and strategy of Korea's communist or Korean national liberation movement. So mostly, you don't have the sort of academic Marxism in the, in the 1920s. It's mostly pretty practical or popularization. Uh, one interesting thing is that Marxist Korean writings from Soviet Union were at that time a bit more advanced, since in Moscow, obviously, there was better access to books. <laughs> and so on. So you have some interesting writings by Nam Man Chul, a Soviet Korean, for example, Oppressed Korea from 1924, the book which contains the seed of colonial wealth drain theory applied to the Korean case. Nam Manchun tried to calculate how much Japanese earned on exploited Korea. So that's a famous wealth drain theory, which first was theoretically fundament was laid by Lenin in his great book on imperialism from 1916. So Nam Manchun read it and tried to apply Leninism to Korean case. 1930s is a very different time. Uh, by, by that time, Korea had albeit small but important Marxist academia. There were Marxists among Japanese professors at Keijo Imperial and also National University. So Miyagi Shikanosuke was a famous Japanese Marxist who taught there. And there were Marxists among younger Korean academics. They're influenced by Miyake. Uh, people like Park Chiu, Shin Nam Chol, and some of them then went on to become important North Korean cadres and very important figures in South Korean establishment. Like, uh, for example, Park Mungyu, who was a young academic at KG Imperial and an expert in Marxist understanding of agricultural questions. He went on to become a minister, uh, high placed cadre in North Korea after the liberation. Uh, the chief uh, the leading member of Marxist circles at Keijo Imperial was the guy, Eugene who afterwards wrote South Korean constitution, which, at which point he was not a Marxist any longer. So obviously, Korea in the 1930s already had Marxist academia. And those people were writing things on completely different level of complexity. Uh, most important writings from 1930s would include, for example, this book, I think it's absolutely, it's a masterpiece, Sucha Choson Yonggu, a research on Korea in figures by Lee Yoson and Kim Seon. Lee Yoson, Japan educated, Kim Seon, uh, Moscow educated. They tried with statistics at hand to establish, to understand the patterns of colonial wealth drain to understand how precisely Korea is being exploited. And what is also important is that they characterize Japanese imperialism in Korea as an instance of state capitalism. They were very fascinated by extremely central role of the state in the Japanese colonial exploitation of Korea. And they were trying to understand this pattern of capitalism driven by the state. It's pretty important because state was also central for South Korea's capital's development. So that was a completely different level of theorization. And then you had people like Park Chiu, 
who learned German and English, and who wrote, for example, a very important critical article uh, about Heidegger. Heidegger was extremely popular on the right wing in Japan and Korea for a very long time. Korea's, South Korea's official philosopher of 50s and 60s, uh, Park Chung-hong, uh, the guy who drafted the famous, what is it called? Uh, the, uh, what is the Korean name of this? The, it, it's an official ideological document of Park Chung-hee regime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, the, kind of like the Pledge of Alliance. Uh, yes, the National Education uh, Yes, there's Park Chung-hoon, he was official philosopher of Park Chung-hee period. The thing is, Park Chung-hoon's original academic specialty, Heideggerian philosophy. <laughs> So, so yeah, he wouldn't be the first one to go from Heidegger to the far right. <laughs> yeah, given Heidegger's own trajectories. Oh, right. <laughs> but it's so hardly surprising. But what's interesting is that Pak Chiu was a Korean Marxist who wrote a very long and interesting piece of critique on Heidegger already in the 1930s. So Xin Nam Chol was also a critique of Heidegger as well. So they were trying to link Heideggerian philosophy to the general decline of the small educated bourgeoisie in, Cologne, uh, in Germany at that time, and the general circumstances of capitalist crisis, which were breeding this mood of anxiety so much uh, embodied by Heideggerian philosophy. So we have those pieces and we have, for example, very good piece by Pak chi an attempt to analyze the sources, ideological sources of fascism, how fascist philosophy came into being. Uh, it's still interesting to read because, for example, he mentions there the role of Catholic philosophy that is a corporate state doctrine coming from right-wing Catholic circles and things like this and the connections of course with the right-wing interpretation of Hegelian philosophy and so on. So, so we have a completely different level of theory, uh, of theory in the 1930s and Korea at that point was becoming an important center of Marxist thought in the Japanese empire. But of course, those developments all stopped after liberation, Korea was divided. Marxist academia could not exist in anti-communist South Korea. Many Marxists went north, but what they could there was very much limited. Some of them continued to work in disciplines like history, for example, ethnography and so on. But it, it was very limited what they could write and say. All right, so it's, uh, your ride is here. Uh, we'll, we'll start wrapping up. Do you guys have anything that you want to uh, say as final remarks? Uh, well, I guess, um, so we're going to edit this episode down and like add an intro and stuff and clean it up. But um, before you go, can you tell listeners where they can find your work uh, if in, on the web? Or do you have, uh, you mentioned a book is coming out maybe next year. Yes, uh, Hawaii University Press. Uh, it's going to be entitled Red Decades. 
a Korean socialist movement of the 1920s and 30s. So that's going to come next year from Hawaii University Press. Otherwise, my articles can be found, most of them full text, at major websites like Academia, Edu, and ResearchGate. So you, you have the full text uh, there, or otherwise you can search for them in Google Scholar. Google Scholar. Uh, it, it, it will come up. So, and in, if you read Korean, then I have the recent book published, which you have referred to, uh, the biographies of Korean socialists, which again, may be a pop, good popular reference. Okay, do you think there, are there any plans to maybe translate that into English or other languages, that particular book? Well, but since my book is going to come out in English, is that, you see, this, 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 this one is a popular book. Hmm. So the question is whether we have a large popular readership for that in the Anglophone countries. And I'm not, I'm not very much sure about this point. Mm -hmm. Well, we'll Let's try to see. develop that audience yeah. <laughs> and it, it, hope it, this it, podcast uh, well, contributes you see, generally, to that. I think you, you come from the United States, right? So I'm very much uh, sort of inspired by development there because it looks like younger Americans are increasingly pro-socialist. Mm. It's an mm. interesting thing because Korea is much more moderate. Anyways, mm. after all, Korea's status had become higher, much higher in the recent years. While America's hegemonic status is an obvious decline. So the which I yeah. see make people think twice about this. Oh, it's definitely a big part of it, yeah. Yeah, because obviously when you see that your, your state is plunging down, you start thinking about the world and you become more critical. In South Korea, it's a bit different trajectory. So but I feel very inspired by news from the United States about, say, people in their 20s choosing socialism or capitalism. My God, that sounds so inspiring. But yeah, of course, so I rough. guess socialism for but, Americans means something like, say, Swedish or Norwegian society. I guess, but well, still. I mean, that's yeah, one that's of the, the complications. I mean, there's <laughs> that's the problem. But uh, I mean, Greg mm. and I are both in DSA, so we're you know we're part of this wave, and it's a good thing to be a part of. But it's not without its contradictions, as you know, everything is right. But even Norwegian society, I mean, given that in Norway we enjoy more or less free medicine, free education. Yeah, yeah. Even that would be vastly better than the current conditions of the United States. Oh, of course, of course. <laughs> I mean, that's why Medicare for all is like one of the central demands. Of the Obviously, fashion. because again, in most places around the industrialized world, it's taken for granted. All right, I guess we can wrap it up here. We can't keep your ride waiting any longer. Uh, we really appreciate the time you took uh, you put out to speak to us.
Где-то есть люди, для которых есть день и есть ночь Где-то есть люди, у которых есть сын и есть дождь Где-то есть люди, для которых теорема верна Но кто-то станет стеной, а кто-то плечом в